Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and society. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. A lot. Like a I can lot. I can completely validate that like she's basically like even when she's sleeping all she's, the time she's talking Just about science. Science. Sleep. Yeah. So in this episode, we're going to be doing another one of those deep dives into aspects of writing. And this is about how to build a world in your fiction, how other people have done it, how we do it, what the pitfalls are. And we're going to try to look at pretty much every aspect of creating a believable alternate reality from culture and environment to history and politics. And plus, we are super lucky to have Kay Tempest Bradford joining us in the second half of the episode to talk about her work teaching the Writing the Other workshops, which are all about world building, and also her own work world building, doing something called Pyramid Punk. So let's get started. Where does the term world building even come from? It sounds very grandiose. What does it mean? <laughs> it is very grandiose. And I think these days, you know, really since the 1960s, it's been a term that's mostly been applied to thinking about fictional worlds. And that really comes out of people looking at J.R.R. Tolkien's world building where he created languages and an entire kind of socio-geographical world. But the term has its roots in the 19th century and early 20th century when scientists and especially physicists were speculating about worlds that had different physical laws than our own. And so part of the art of figuring out physics on our world and in our universe is really to imagine, well, what if it was different? You know, how would how would matter behave differently or how would energy behave differently? And so it makes perfect sense that you'd see kind of a segue between the world of science and the world of science fiction at a certain point because, of course, a lot of writers in our genre are reading those scientists and thinking about those questions and especially thinking about the questions around what would it be like if physical reality was totally different and we had giant worms or we had flying dinosaurs mm -hmm. or I guess we did have flying dinosaurs. So that that would be our world. But you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So Charlie Jane, getting started with building a world can be bewildering. And I wanted to invoke the spirit of the writer or the creator at the start of that process by playing a clip from one of my favorite movies, Adaptation which is a Charlie Kaufman movie that was directed by Spike Jones about a guy who is trying to adapt a nonfiction book and turn it into something. And so he's it's the the book is The Orchid Thief, and he's trying to imagine he's sitting down to write and he's like, okay, what is the story of the orchid? And this is what he comes up with. To write about a flower, to dramatize a flower, I have to show the flower's arc. And the flower's arc stretches back to the beginning of life. How did this flower get here? What was its journey? Darwin writes that we all come from the very first single cell organism. Yet here I am. And there's LaRoche. There's Orlean. And there's the ghost orchid. All trapped in our own bodies, in moments in history. 
That's it. That's what I need to do. Tie all of history together. Start right before life begins on the planet. All is lifeless. And then life, life begins um, with organisms, those little single cell ones. Oh, and it's before sex, because like everything was asexual. Uh, from there, we go to bigger things, jellyfish. And then that fish that got legs on it and crawled out on the land. And then we see, you know, like um, uh, dinosaurs. And then they're around for a long, long time. And then and then a an asteroid comes and, and flirts. The insects, the ascended mammals, the primates, monkeys, the simple monkeys. And so, of course, this is Nick Cage <laughs> playing this character. The so inimitable Nick Cage. So it's already amazing. And I, the thing I love about this is that he's he's trying to figure out how do you start. And he starts out with like, okay, it's a flower. It's just this flower. But it's also these people. But it's also the entire history of evolution on Earth. It's the whole universe. Right. It's the whole universe. And I feel like that is everyone at the beginning of starting world building is the first question is always scope. Like, how big is your world? How far back do you want to go? So, Charlie Jane, talk a little bit about that. How do writers in general get a hold of that question and figure out the scope? Like, what's the first sort of set of steps to get through? Yeah. I mean, I wish that there was a standard set of steps that you go through to create a world. I feel like every world is different. And I think the first thing you have to do is kind of ask yourself what the what you need the world for and how much of the world you're going to need in the story because really you could spend five years, you know, creating an entire planet and map out like, oh, in the mountains and the swamp and the desert and like here's what these people over here do. But if your story never visits those places, if the characters never get there, if you never actually – spend any time in some of those locations, that time could be kind of a wasted effort. And I think that the scope of your story is part of what informs your world building. And also, I think that there are there are different values to world building that people have. Like, for example, we want world building to, to feel immersive and to feel like it's a real place that you could actually visit. You want people to kind of get sucked into the world as much as caring about the characters. They have to feel like they really want to inhabit this place. And that was that's what's so great about fictional worlds like Star Wars or Harry Potter or whatever is that everybody kind of feels like they could go and live at Hogwarts or whatever and they could go and live – in the Star Wars universe and they kind of understand it and they have a sense of what it's like to, to actually be there. And and then the other thing about world building I think that's really good is it provides in a sense kind of an obstacle course for your characters. I always say that world building is the thing that you can't just ignore. Like you can't walk through walls. You can't just like, you know, spit on a police officer and just keep walking for the rest of your day. Like there are things that you can't ignore or that you have to at least be aware of if you're going to get from A to B in the real world. And that's good world building, I think, in some cases makes things more complicated or creates a set of obstacles for your characters to, to navigate. But I think that a lot of it has to do with the scope and a lot of that thing of like creating an immersive world that people want to live in, want to spend time in, is about just having a lot of details that people can glom onto, that people can kind of feel attached to. In a way, I think what you're describing is there's two levels to the world. There's kind of the macro world, which is like what you're describing with, say, Star Wars, for example, where you know, there's a bunch of planets, there's a bunch of civilizations and and government groups and all kinds of other organizations, um, not all of which are actually world built very well, but <laughs> but they're there. I mean, there's a kind there's a sense of astropolitics. And 
Then there's the little things. There's the little details. Like I loved what you said about you can't spit on a policeman and expect to just like continue with your day. Mm-hmm. And those are the little social things that I think make worlds really come to life. And I really feel like I think for me – I often feel like world building falls down on the details. Oh, yeah. You get this amazing sort of sweeping tale of like aristocratic spaceship owning dynasties. And it's like, wow, that's really cool. But then characters in their everyday interactions seem – completely unrealistic. You know, mm-hmm. they they kind of just deliver speeches to each other or they have incredibly simplistic <clears throat> goals. Like, my goal is I want to continue ruling. And, which is like, okay, yeah. but you know, what are the what are the other parts of your, you know, is this because you've been taught that you should want this? Is it because you really are just a power crazed monkey? Is it because you have an implant in your brain that makes you hyper aggressive is it like what what is it and like and who are the people around you that are like helping you do that Mm -hmm. or the or the robots around you or the tiny furry creatures that are mostly made of teeth like what what's happening in the fabric of your world that's kind of giving you that thing so i i think that it has to be both the big world and then the small details a question i have for you and there may not be an answer to this but i've been thinking about it a lot because i've been doing a lot of tabletop gaming where there's a lot of world building without story. Like you kind of get a world and then you kind of – the idea is that you and your character friends kind of help build a story. And same thing in Minecraft, right, where you're kind of given a world and then it's up to you if you want to have a story or what you want to build. So do you think it's possible to build a world that doesn't have a story in it? Like a completely – like a world that's really detailed in all the ways that we've just been describing but doesn't – that's kind of story neutral, that's just kind of like there and you can put any story you want into it? Absolutely. I mean, I think that you can, anybody can do anything. I mean, people can, and people can okay, do fine. whatever they <laughs> want. But I think that, I think that there are going to be stories embedded in the fabric of that world. I think part of what makes a world interesting is the history and the reasons why things are the way they are. And when you look at the little small details, like, okay, we eat these you know, cinnamon buns in this world or whatever. Mm, now now I'm craving buns. cinnamon buns. <laughs> like, you know, we eat these cinnamon buns and, you know, maybe there's a religious reason why we eat the cinnamon buns. Maybe there's some historical event that we're commemorating. Maybe the reason why we have the cinnamon buns is because somebody found a better way to mill flour 100 years ago. And so... Maybe it's because we colonized a country that has cinnamon. Yeah, we, exactly. There was a whole, like cinnamon colonialism thing going on. And I feel like any little item like that, like a piece of music or a piece of art or food or sports or, you know, politics, there's going to be things that kind of get into the fabric of the world around like this crop will grow, but this crop won't grow. So this is why we have this food and we don't have this other food. Or this is why we wear this kind of clothing because we can make fabric out of this particular kind of plant that we're able to harvest. Those kinds of details, but also the historical, there was a war 30 years ago, and every year on this day, we we eat this thing to commemorate that, or because of this war, we no longer do this thing that we used to do because it it's associated with these people that we were fighting against. I think stuff like that. So I think, yes, you can have a world without stories being told in it. You can just keep spinning out more and more details and building more and more cool stuff, and that's kind of awesome. It's like sort of like Legos in a way, it's, but it's also like kind of creating an RPG setting. And I kind of did that for a couple of years with The City in the Middle of the Night. 
But I think that if it's an interesting world, if it's a world that's compelling, there will be stories embedded in it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you sort of started by saying, sure, you can have a world without stories, but then your entire answer kind of <laughs> convinced me of the opposite, that you couldn't really have a rich world that didn't have some stories in it. And I remember one time I was I was being, I'm sure, an extremely annoying player in a Dungeons & Dragons game where the poor DM just wanted us to get into this cool dungeon and she was describing the dungeon. She's like, actually, you know, it's this is some ancient elvish. You're entering kind of the lower parts of an ancient elvish city. And I started saying, like, well, who built it? Wait, <laughs> why is there a dwarfish city on top of the elvish city? Did the what what happened to those elves? And I and I was really interested in like the whole backstory of it. And all of the other players were just like, shut the fuck up. Like we <laughs> just want to fucking get the loot. And I Aww. think, you know, but I think the point is that that was embedded in the story. Like the story asked me to ask that question. It's like, well, why is it an ancient elvish realm that's underneath a dwarvish realm? Like, you know, and we're exploring it now. And so whatever we find in it is going to have something to do with whatever that history is, where like one group of creatures got wiped out by another group of creatures. And like, so I think you can choose to ignore that part and you can choose to just say like, oh, look, that just means there's cool ancient elvish on the walls. Or you can sort of look at that story Look at that at that history as part of a story. So, and I think the best examples of playing in alternate worlds and playing in secondary worlds allow us to kind of to get a little bit of each thing, like a little bit of just like fighting in a cool place, but also a taste of the the long history that led us there. And I think that's true of physical environments too. I know you've thought a lot about designing physical environments for worlds that you've written in. Do you think that there's stories embedded in that as well? I like world building to be messy in general. And one of the ways that world building can be messy is when you have, you know, physical constraints that come from this volcano erupts every once in a while or, you know, there's this like there are natural disasters that happen or there are things that we can't do because of our environment that, you know, gets in the way. I think that the kind of messiness of human beings creating things that are kind of weird and that, you know, I love the the dwarfish temple built on top of the elfish temple because I feel like that is like real life. Like people go so and like much. find yeah. an ancient structure and they're like, oh, we'll just build a new thing on top of this. And like, you know, <laughs> yep. we were just in London hearing the Museum of London archaeology section about all about like how the post- Roman Britain, the Angles and Saxons basically just like built London kind of adjacent to but also kind of on top of the Roman London. And they were like, oh, yeah, we can just use this stuff that's lying around. I feel like any backstory that I'm going to believe in is going to be messy and is going to involve just stuff that nobody really planned on. And I think natural phenomena and kind of big structures are part of that for sure. I also think that, you know, people, people work with what they've got. Right. People work with if they come and settle a place and there's like a mountain, they're like, we great, we can use the mountain for X, Y, and Z. If there's a stream coming down the mountain, we can build a turbine around it. Attach a canal to it. Yeah. Um, or we can worship the mountain. Yeah, exactly. Because, oh, man, mountains are great to worship because they're just so cool looking. And so if you're going to, you know, if you're going to start your spirituality with something like mountains are good. I, I'm just giving you advice <laughs> if, you're, yeah. if, if you're looking to worship your environment. <laughs> but geography and like big structures give us like interesting accidents. They give us like interesting kind of stuff that nobody could control that we just kind of like this is what we're working with. And so we made these decisions based on 
these situations that we had. Like I said, I like world building to be messy. I feel like when I get thrown out of world building, it's either that it's just really vaguely drawn. It's drawn in this really kind of sketchy way that the details are not really solid enough or that the history is too simple. That it's like we came to this place 10,000 years ago and ever since we've been doing the same thing. And it's like really 10,000 years. You've been just here doing the exact same thing for 10,000 years with no kind of – Nobody no disagreements. Ever, yeah, no, nobody ever was ever like, hey, why don't we do this other thing instead? Or why don't we go somewhere else? Or I feel like if you look at any real life place, it's like, oh, yeah, this was abandoned for 100 years. And then we came back here, but we started doing this other thing here. And then at one point, we were just using this place as a garbage dump. But then we decided we should farm here instead. And then we decided it was actually a sacred place. And then I don't know, like stuff like that. And then a whole new group of people came in and they didn't even know what we'd ever used this place for. And so they were like, oh, well, we'll just build a housing tract on top of all of it. And, you know, and so there's like 40 layers now. There's like housing tract and then there's farm and then there's sacred place and then there's garbage dump. And if you're an archaeologist and you're digging down, you're like, holy crap, <laughs> there's like a million layers here. So I think for me, what throws me out of a world is exactly what you're saying, like the fact that it's not messy, if it doesn't feel complex enough. And that doesn't mean that you need a character to have an info dump and be like, as you know, Charlie Jane, we've actually had 40,000 years of strife. And here's, you know, a stratigraphy of all of our strife that we've brought in to show you. But I also think that it isn't just about history. It's also about the space that you're building can't all be homogenous. You know, I'm always thrown out of a story when it's the planet of listener people mm-hmm. or it's oh, the planet yeah. of winter or oh, it's the – Right. Yeah, you know, yeah, totally. Unless you have a snowball earth, in which case I'm excited because I'd love to see that. But I think that when you're thinking about building an environment, you want to make sure that the environment feels varied. You know, you want to have deserts and swamps and mountains. Or if you're building uh, a world that doesn't have those features, there should be other kinds of variety. Say what you want about Ringworld by Larry Niven – But one of the things that's delightful about that book is that he imagines what a ring world would be like and how it would generate weather and how over time it would would develop different kinds of habitats. And that's – I mean I would say that's the primary pleasure of reading that book is just finding, you know, the weird storms and all the different things as the the ring world has been breaking down. And so I I always like to see diversity. So I want to see physical diversity in the world. I want to see cultural diversity and I want to see a messy history. Yeah, and I think that another thing that you really need for good world building, especially if it's not like a culture that already exists or a present-day United States or whatever, is language and cultural concepts that are not like one-to-one the same as in American English-speaking cultures, you know, and 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 other cultures that we're aware of. I think that especially if you're if it's a fictional culture the more that they have cultural constructs and ideas about everything from sexuality to romance to war to your duties within society the more that those things are kind of circumscribed by concepts that are not just analogs for concepts that we have in early 21st century america the more i believe in it and the more it seems like there's a lot there's something real there yeah like be really inventive don't yeah. say like oh well of course everyone throughout space and time thinks that sex is dirty mm-hmm. because oh, yeah. obviously and it's like okay Psh. even on earth that's not a universally claim and it certainly has not been historically. And I mean it's easy to pick on that but all kinds of other things too I agree. Like I love 
when you travel to another world in fiction and they have a taboo that we don't have on Earth that's really well thought out, like having a taboo against, for example, eating publicly. Uh, Malka Older has a new collection of short stories where one of the short stories is about that. And they, you know, people don't, you know, people kind of go into a secret little area that's like a bathroom to eat. And it's so well imagined and it's and it really all it really takes is that one detail to make you feel like, oh, shit, I'm in a really alien culture, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, I think, just one way that you can do it. The other thing I want to say before we transition to talking to Tempest is that people seem to forget that characters are also part of world building. Yes. I think that that's really important. And I think that people are shaped by the worlds that they live in or the worlds that they are visiting even. And that a believable world is going to influence how your characters think and how they act. And I feel like the characters are part of the world that they live in. The important thing is that when you're conceiving of a character, there's a certain amount of world building that goes into that person. Like you said, like Like thinking of childhood. Yeah. Yeah. What was their childhood? What influences were they exposed to? Did they love TV or whatever the equivalent of TV is? Did they love some kind of other weird thing that was really non-mainstream? What did they want to do? But I think it's also really important when, especially because I feel like there's a real push in science fiction and fantasy, and maybe there's a good reason for this. If you're going into a weird new world to have a character who's an outsider or a stranger, I mean, this is a thing that Ursula Le Quinn does in in her books all the time where it's like, I'm an anthropologist coming here to tell you about this world. And it works really well for her, I think, partly because she actually knew a lot about anthropology and Mm -hmm. how anthropologists think. And so she was able to world build those characters really well. But I sometimes get a little annoyed with that. Like, I feel like that trope, I understand why people want to do that because it allows the reader to have a point of identification. But I also think there's something to be said for introducing us to an alien world through a character who's at home in it. For sure. And who can show us what it feels like to be at home in what to us feels alien. And maybe that's Maybe that makes the too alienating. I don't know. I mean, I think that I definitely like to see through the eyes of somebody who actually has a relationship with their surroundings. And I think that you do, like you said, get a much richer idea of what the culture is like by seeing what it's like to grow up in the culture or what it is, what it's like to kind of have your expectations for your life shaped by this culture that you're in. And I think that part of why people have gravitated away from portal fantasies to some extent, although I still love portal fantasies, but towards like secondary world fantasies and like epic fantasies is that they like to see characters who belong in the alien weird world, not people who have to discover it, but people who are like at home in it. And then the reader gets to vicariously experience this thing of like, what if I just felt at home in Narnia? What if Narnia is where I grew up? What if Narnia is just like my place? I don't have to have this remove of being a visitor. I can just be like a resident. I can be a native. And I think that's part of what people really seek out in a lot of fantasy and and science fiction as well now is that thing of being a native. That's a really interesting point. So we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back with Kay Tempest Bradford who's going to tell us about writing the other and all the ways that world building can go wrong.
We're so excited to have as our guest in the studio right now the inimitable, the estimable K. Tempest Bradford. And I wanted to start off by asking you about the Writing the Other workshops that you've been helping to organize and host. Where did those get started and what's the rationale for having those workshops versus just telling people to go read the book that Nisi Shal wrote? Well, we started off actually doing an in-person retreat slash workshop. And I organized that uh, with Nisi and Cynthia Ward, who co-wrote the book. And a lot of wonderful writers came out of that workshop. And I've been like really pleased to see, you know, some of them like getting published and such. And then after that, I just thought it would be really great if I could bring this experience to people who can't necessarily come to a writing workshop because of time, because of money, and etc. And another thing was really, I was trying to help Nisi get more income because, you know, as writers, uh, unless we have day jobs, sometimes the income is hard to come by. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I want to make sure that Nisi is taken care of. Yeah. So I proposed to her that we start doing online workshops and she agreed. Then probably about six months, maybe a little less than a year after the first retreat, we started doing them online. One of the things I know that you guys do in these workshops is teach people how to write about marginalized communities and to do it without having terrible fail. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the common failure modes we see when people try to tackle those subjects without actually understanding what it means to write the other. I feel like the the most common stuff that I see more has to do with people just not doing enough research and going off of the stereotypes that they have received from various places in our culture. Sometimes those stereotypes come from other media, the TV they watch, the movies, the other books they read. Sometimes those stereotypes just come from like general culture. Like everybody knows that black people are such and such a way. And everybody knows that women are such and such a way which of course, you know, is usually just bollocks. Mm -hmm. And because these like modes of thinking, I guess you could say, are just accepted, people are like, oh, well, everybody says black people are such and such a way, so they must be such and such a way. And I see that on my television. So I'm just going to put that in my book and then fail ensues. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I think that the biggest thing that we try to impart to people is Not just that like you have to do your research, but you have to realize that you have to do research. You have to realize that you have to unlearn the things that your culture has taught you. And that is true for everybody. That's true for writers who come from, you know, the more privileged sectors of society are white, heterosexual, cisgender, able-bodied, middle-class Christian culture men. You know, they they Mm -hmm. have to work at it, but also, you know, Anybody has to work out if you're a woman, if you're a black person, if you're a native person, if you are not able-bodied, you know, whatever it is, because not all marginalizations are the same. They don't always present the same. And unless you experience it, you don't necessarily know how to spot it unless you are actively looking and learning and trying to pick apart like what you think you know, what you've been told. So that's the biggest thing that I think that when people come to our classes, that is what they have to unlearn. I was actually talking to author Stephen Barnes about our class earlier this year. And I was saying, yeah, this happens every time where they start out the class and, you know, because they're taking it, they're like, I know that I have to do this well. And, and they have 
a lot of our students just like, they feel like they are knowledgeable, but they want to make sure. And that's why mm -hmm. they're taking the class. But then in the course of taking the class, they realize everything that they don't know and everything that they haven't examined. And then there's oh, like yeah. a little bit of a crisis that goes on where they're like, oh no, I thought I knew, but I realized I still have all these stereotypes in my head. And, and we're like, that's okay. Because that's what we're here to like help you understand that you still have those things and to give you tools to help you unlearn stuff and, and to learn better things and to go forward. But it's like, it's just a process that happens over and over. And Stephen Barnes and said, well, maybe you need to tell them that at the beginning, because this is like a, a little bit of a hero's journey thing, because when they go through that, it's yeah. like them going through the dark night of the soul. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. that actually makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so we have to we have to take them through the dark night of the soul. But it's a good part of the process, because sometimes you do need that realization that you don't know everything that you think you know, in order to be able to like really absorb all the tools to do it better. You know, I went through that and sure that any writer who has, you know, done something along these lines has gone through that. And, you know, a lot of science fiction writers are really smart people who, you know, have probably read a lot of stuff and thought about a lot of stuff. Why is it so hard for someone who's already really smart and really kind of engaged with, you know, real life history and stuff to avoid falling into these awful stereotypes? Probably because they're so smart. <laughs> oh. um, yeah. You know, just like having a little bit of knowledge sometimes like means that you you think that you don't need any more knowledge because you have some of it. I feel like that's just common in lots of things in life. Feeling like, oh well, I know that and I know more about that than some average person over there. So that means that I'm mm -hmm. super smart. But really there's there's more to learn. There's always people who are more expert than you. And I think that's that's something good to know. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you could talk about how this kind of information about real life groups, human groups, translates into world building if you're making a fantasy world or if you're creating another planet. Like, how does it help for me to be educated about minority groups in the United States if I'm writing a story about aliens on another world? Like, why, why, is, why is that important? It's important because the more you understand about how humans do things, the better worlds that you can create, even if those worlds aren't necessarily about humans. But we all have to come from a human perspective, because like at this time, we don't know anybody who came from another planet, at least unless as you're a male Illuminati. Right, you know, know <laughs> unless you're in the Illuminati, unless you were hanging around in ancient Egypt when the, when the aliens came to build the pyramids, like, we don't actually know any aliens. And so um, we always have to, you know, as writers, we bring a human perspective to everything. And so understanding how culture works, understanding how things have gone down in history and why they've gone down that way can give you a lot of insight into how you then project into the future or how you then project into a secondary world. I think that probably the best world building education that I ever received was from uh, starting to understand things about ancient Egyptian history, because that's what I've been studying for, for many a year. And just sort of understanding how not only spiritual and cultural things mix, but also how environment impacts so much the way that a culture develops. Because so much about 
what was going on in ancient Egypt completely had to do with the fact of that Egypt went from being a sort of savanna-like environment where there was rain to not that. <laughs> um, actually, yeah. like kind of rapidly at one point. Huh. And how Egyptians had to plan everything around what was going on with the Nile, which was their only major source of water for crops and other things. And like, there are tons of things that go into it besides just that, but like beginning to understand that and just understanding how that worked in that one place, I was able to sort of understand how to extrapolate to other things. And the more I learn about other different cultures, be they, you know, North American cultures in the present or in the past, or I once delved into what was going on in Europe during the War of the Roses because YouTube was like, you like watching stuff about Game of Thrones? Watch this. And I was like, this is more, <laughs> much more interesting. Um, yeah. but, but thinking about like a lot of the things that made those historic events come about, it wasn't just because like some guy was feeling away. Like it was some guy feeling away. <laughs> plus there was no other great factors. man who like changed the course of history? Um, somehow, no. <laughs> Somehow that wasn't it. Was it. it was all, all Ramses, man. He just right. like, he built Egypt and then that was right. it. Right. Just, just, just Ramses doing stuff. But meanwhile, meanwhile, all the other people who were before Ramses are like, how come nobody talks about us? I was very important. good question. Says it's Pepe the first. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things I hear a lot or one of the things that we kind of talk about a lot in science fiction and fantasy circles is that you can t deal with real like difficult political questions in science fiction by setting them in the future or on another planet or in a magical realm. You know, if you want to comment on stuff that's happening here and now, you can transpose it to another setting or create a metaphor through like, you know, having aliens who kind of stand in for stuff. And, you know, and that is a very valuable tool that science fiction offers. But it feels like when people try to create metaphors for like racism or, or you know, injustice or misogyny or whatever by putting it among aliens or making having aliens stand in for different groups or whatever or fairies that it goes horribly wrong and i was wondering if you have any thoughts about why those kinds of metaphors can go horribly wrong i feel like in a lot of cases when it goes wrong it's because the author isn't actually as smart about the issue at hand as they think they are which is one of the reasons why they choose metaphor or allegory or whatever in the first place. Because if they understood the issues better, they would be able to translate it into an allegory that, that didn't just make everybody go, what the heck was that? Why? <laughs> why did you do that? And it's interesting because one of the examples that I have that I love is actually the original Star Trek. Because mm -hmm. sometimes the original Star Trek would engage in some allegory and you're like, that's really good. Like, thank you, Gene Roddenberry. And other times you're just like, no, Gene Roddenberry, stop. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> that's oh that's too on point. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but I this think, guy's black on the wrong side and he's white right? on the wrong side. And, you're like, and like, oh, I see oh, what God. you're doing. And it's just like, oh, stop. Oh, geez, um, I, stop. And I think, <laughs> I think when allegory is, is like too one-to-one, 
like that's when it gets like mm, like let's let's not have that because because then it just looks like you're you're sort of avoiding the issue gene roddenberry wanted to address things on television that he would never have been allowed to address directly the vietnam mm-hmm. war and other like social issues such as racism and and stuff he wasn't able to actually just like make television about those things he had to make it an allegory in order to get it on television because those were his limitations at the time but the thing that i sort of wrestle with myself and and i sort of challenge other science fiction and fantasy authors with is that we don't necessarily have those same restrictions now like you could make a tv show and many people have about how they don't like this president or they don't like this current war or they don't like the way that the financial crisis was handled or whatever it is like there is not as much censorship of the type that Roddenberry experienced in our media right now. So that means that you don't have to always couch things in an allegory. And so then I'm like, so why are you putting in an allegory right now? Like, are you doing that because you're like, well, writing shouldn't be political or should be sneakily political and not mm-hmm. really political. I'm like, Mm-mm, stop it. <laughs> Everything is political. <laughs> but also because when I see the way that marginalized authors deal with that same sort of thing, I feel like they're actually getting more into it by, by not necessarily, I wouldn't call it hiding an allegory, but like not using allegory in quite the same way. I actually wrote um, an essay about this because I was talking about Janelle Monet and mm-hmm. Chesha Burke and their use of the Android as the other. Because we, we love that in science fiction and fantasy where we're like, the aliens stand in for the other. and Or androids, they stand in for the other. And the way that Janelle Monet uses androids as the other is that she actually literally makes them the other. The androids that are in the world that she is creating in her music with Sidney Mayweather or the Jane android, whatever, they are made to look like Black people. And so that means that in the story when the androids are being oppressed and used and made into commodities it's black bodies being oppressed and used and made into commodities and so you can't avoid the message that she's sending and i also compare that to chesha burke's story that was published i think in 2017 or 2018 in apex it's called say she toy and it is about an android who is created literally to be abused all throughout the story people buy her time to abuse her and they're not just abusing her because she's an android they're abusing her because she's an android that looks like a black woman and the story challenges you to think about whether or not it's quote okay for somebody to abuse this android who looks like a black woman because then it will allegedly keep them from abusing black people but does it really do that? Or does yeah. it just like keep you in that state where you're like, it's totally okay for me to abuse black people. And so that's what I mean. Like the way that, you know, Janelle Monet and Chesha Burke and other um, authors who come from different marginalized identities deal with those issues, problematizes them even while using the sort of allegory framework that, you know, we find a lot in science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. So finally, what can you tell us about Pyramid Punk? Where did that idea come from? And how is Pyramid Punk going to take over the universe? 
is going to take over the universe by being awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I I'm still in the midst of of writing the first novel, although I have a couple of short stories that I've written in the pyramid punk world, but it's essentially steampunk in ancient Egypt. And mm. I put it in ancient Egypt specifically and not like sort of in Victorian era Egypt in part because I wanted to get away from the Victorian era with steampunk like if I was going to engage in steampunk I I don't care about Victorians but also <laughs> because I really love ancient Egypt as a setting for fantasy but to not engage in the same kind of fantasy that some others have where like everything is because of aliens or you know whatever mm-hmm. and I wanted to show like a technologically advanced ancient Egypt that came from like just smart people who were like, oh, wait a minute. It's so sunny here. Why don't we use this sun to like make some steam to like make this metal beetle like go and like make it build things for us. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was where what I originally had wanted to do. And I've fallen like very deeply in love with this world, which is good because it's taken me forever to write this book. But also because the more I have sort of veered off in my research away from sort of traditional academic Egyptologists into the more esoteric Egyptological world, I'm discovering um, all sorts of things that I think are really good things to, to play around with in fiction. And also just like having a greater appreciation for just how amazing the ancients were. Like, I I know that everybody was always like, oh, ancient aliens are so terrible. I'm like, yes, generally that's true. But I do appreciate about that show that they're like, the people who were like living 10,000 years in the past were doing much cooler stuff than you think they were. They weren't just hanging out in caves or whatever. Like they were involved in in, in all these things. And I'm like, yes, that's true. And then they're like, but then the aliens came. And I'm like, no, stop. <laughs> I draw the line. I draw the line at aliens. But but that is one of the things that I appreciate about alternate Egyptologists and and sort of metaphysical ancient researchers is that they are more open to the idea that people in the past were we're doing much cooler things and we're smarter and and had higher technology than we seem to think. Since we've been talking about world building and as you're recreating ancient Egypt, what kind of world building stuff are you doing to show us like everyday Egyptian life? It's hard because, yeah, the most stuff we know about ancient Egypt does come from royal sources. And that's just literally because of like they had tombs, whereas people who were of lower status didn't always have tombs. And so we don't always know as much about their daily lives as we know about the the daily lives of the nobility. But right now, the book that I'm writing sort of takes place across two different social castes, but they're still sort of upper social castes. And uh, that's just because of the, the subject matter that I chose. The main thing that I have been really looking into in terms of, of everyday life was how the spiritual aspect of ancient Egypt, like filtered down into all the different layers of society, because it's much more than just like, they were religious people, and they went to church on Sunday, they didn't actually have church. Um, but, (laughs) But the way that Egyptians conceived of how their actions were impacted by or impacted things in the spiritual realm, things having to do with the gods and how different aspects of their environment were given a spiritual side to them 
all of that really fascinates me. And I'm trying my best to recreate that in a way that comes across. The other big thing that I've been trying to do a lot of research on is how matriarchal societies function. Because Mm. the more research I do, the more I am convinced that ancient Egypt up until a little bit into the new kingdom was a straight up matriarchal society. Like not even like sort of matriarchal or it's matrilineal, but no, like I think it was a straight up matriarchal society. And just trying to think about how that worked on every level, how that worked in terms of what was going on with the nobility and, you know, the people in the palaces, as well as people in um, different sort of middle-class structures, as well as the people in um, what we would like call the working class structures. That's been a big area of my research lately. Cool. I can't wait to read about the yeah, matriarchy. I'm super excited to read this book. <laughs> Ancient and steampunk matriarchy is my jam. <laughs> I'm ready for pyramid punk to just like sweep over everything and leave everything changed in its wake. Oh, awesome. Um, Tempest, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you and, and discover more about your awesomeness? Well, I have a website, ktempestbradford.com. Uh, and that pretty much links to everything. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I also have a Patreon um, in which I give people the chapters that I write in the Pyramid Punk universe Ooh. very slowly, <laughs> very, very slowly at this point. Um, but that's the that's sort of the main thing that's keeping me going is like giving chapters to my patrons. And where can people find out about the writing the other workshops? You can go to writingtheother.com and there's uh, we have actually have a lot of uh, free resources on there, like links to articles and essays, um, videos that either uh, we link to or reproduce that uh, we put in our resources file. Um, you can buy the books there and you can find out about all the upcoming classes. Cool. All cool. right. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. You can find us on Patreon, and we'd love it if you would support us. You can also follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. Please, if you are listening to us through Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. It really helps people find us. Um, Otherwise, you can listen to us really through any mechanism for listening to podcasts. (laughs) It's pretty much all open to you. And we would love to thank our amazing producer, Veronica Simonetti, and Chris Palmer, who does the music. And we will be talking in your ear in two weeks. Bye. Bye.